thank you, Maya, for that reading. Uh, the title of this message is Remember Christ Died. There was actually a lot in that reading, wasn't there? We're not going to be able to cover all of it. Um, I'd love to have a few sermons perhaps, but we've only got one to cover this passage, so we'll get through what we can uh, in the time that we've got. One of the privileges or responsibilities, depending on which way you look at it, of being a Year 7 teacher is that I get to go on Canberra Camp each year. And when I go on Canberra Camp, uh, one of the first places that we visit is the Australian War Memorial. And the Australian War Memorial, looking something like this, um, it's one of the first places that we visit and it's great to go there and hear all the different stories The stories for me is what makes the War Memorial come to life. Uh, We often get a guide that takes us around and that guide is able to tell us the stories behind the different um, exhibitions in the um, Museum of the War Memorial. And there was one year that I remember, and it's the only year that I remember that we were there on Remembrance Day. And we came out into what's called the commemorative area. This is the commemorative area. And we were in sort of the cloisters up the top and we were looking down And we were asked to remember a certain soldier who had died in the Afghanistan war in 2010. He was a helicopter pilot. What was interesting about us being asked to remember is there wasn't very many people standing around in the cloisters that day that knew this pilot. There were a handful of people there, but not many of us knew this pilot. Yet we were being asked to remember him. And the Australian War Memorial does a really good job of getting us to remember uh, different people that have done particular things. But remembering has more of a meaning than just casting our minds back to something, doesn't it? When you remember something, it is teaching us that there is an ongoing significance. And in the case of the Australian War War Memorial, they're trying to get us to remember what these soldiers have done so that we can recognise the freedoms that we have in our um, country that we live. The title of this sermon is Remember Christ Died. And we need to cast our minds back to what Christ has done on the cross, but we need to realise that that has significance for what happens today, what happens in our lives today. As... um, good Baptists, when we come to read something about the Lord's Supper and we hear the words, this is my body, do this in remembrance of me, we are casting our minds back, aren't we? We're casting our minds back to what Jesus did at the cross. There are other denominations that have a slightly different emphasis to what we have when they come to doing communion or the Lord's Supper. I'll use those two words interchangeably. Um, The Lutherans, for example, when they partake of the Lord's Supper, when they hear the words, this is my body, they understand that more literally than we do. They understand that to mean this is actually Christ's body and Luther described that as in, with and under the bread. So for Lutherans, it's still the bread, but it's also Christ's body in, with and under that. And many years ago, I was in the library at Australian Lutheran College, uh, what was then called Luther Seminary, and I was speaking to a student there who was training to be a pastor. And we were having a good hearty conversation about the Lord's Supper and this passage. And uh, when we got on to uh, the fact that it says, do this in remembrance of me, I thought I had a really good argument at that point. But he said to me, 
Chris, remember where you are, you're in the library. He said, don't run in the library, but I wasn't, but don't run in the library, remember where you are. His point was that this word remembrance has a greater significance than just casting our minds back to something. He was saying that when it says remember, there's a certain awe about the occasion. There's a certain significance about the occasion. And whether we agree with um, this Lutheran, um, now pastor, Lutheran pastor or not, about the real presence of Christ's body in communion, what we can all agree on is the fact that when we are remembering what happens at the cross, it has greater significance than just putting our minds back to that place. Our behaviour, our attitude should be shaped by what has happened at the cross. And that's why this message is entitled, Remember Christ Died. What happened at the cross has ongoing significance for us today. I'm actually going to start in the um, middle of the passage that we read. 1 Corinthians 17:26 says, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What does that mean? You're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. In order to understand that, we need to remember something. We need to remember something that Cam taught us about patrons and clients. You might remember that in the society that they were living, so the, this is sort of a Roman society, first century Roman society, um, but we're in the city of Corinth that Paul is writing to, obviously. And the patrons in, those, in that society were the, um, the ones with a high social status. Uh, they were really uh, esteemed and upheld in society. Um, they were the ones that actually provided things for other people also. Now, the patrons provided jobs, they provided, um, sometimes they provided land, they certainly provided security for people. And the people that they provided security to were the clients. Now, the clients were um, possibly employed by the patrons, um, but their major job was, I guess, to give uh, reverence, almost give awe to the uh, patrons. Some people like to think of patrons as elected members of parliament. Um, that analogy holds for a little while until you realise that the clients had to uh, give sort of praise and whatever to the members of parliament. That, that bit doesn't quite ring true. Um, and so we've got these, this patron and this client uh, relationship and this is the image that you often see to do with patrons and clients. So we've got the patron on the right and the client, I guess he's sort of sucking up to him, but the, it's interesting in this that the money is going from the patron to the client. In some things you read the money's going the other way. And the way that I like to think of this is probably with the patron being the government. And the reason I think of that is because governments sometimes give handouts to people, don't they? Uh, government give um, family tax benefit to uh, people in society, but then those people in society, if we think of them as the clients, will then pay money back to the government through taxes. So it's not altogether clear in terms of which direction the money is flowing there. Um, another brief diagram, patron provides goods and services, commerce, security as I mentioned before, 
Uh, the client provides praise and adoration, loyalty, authority and taxes. The clients would put the patrons in their position really because they were voting for them. So that was their key responsibility as people who were receiving from these patrons. Now, in Corinth at the time, there was a particular thing that's happening when the church is gathering for worship. And to understand that, we need to get into these houses that they were in. The patrons seemed to own these houses. And in these houses, there was a place called the Triclinium. I don't know if that's the correct pronunciation, but the Triclinium. And what you can see in here is there are um, what they were calling couches. So people would go in here and they would lounge around on the couches, but what else you might notice there is there is sort of utensils and things. This is the place that they eat. This is the place that they eat where it's more formal. Now, in our society, it's not like that at all, is it? If you eat in a formal way in our society, I tend to think of it as um, you're sitting in an uncomfortable chair. I know in my house growing up, we had a family room and then we had the dining room and on the more formal occasions when there was a celebration or grandparents were coming over, something like that, we'd go into the dining room and we'd sit on the more uncomfortable chairs. Perhaps the Romans had it right that when they had a more formal occasion, they were sitting back and they were reclining. So this is the dining room. It is where they recline. Interesting, isn't it? Now, to move on from there, um, I want to just give an analogy of what was happening because the patrons were in this triclinium and no one else was. This is a church gathering. It is a public church gathering, yet the people are divided out. They're separated. Patrons in one area and the clients, I'll get to that in a moment, they are in a different area. And I like to think of this like an aeroplane. In first class, you have the patrons. When they're served their meals, they're able to sit back, recline. They've got plenty of room to spread out. They are the first class citizens. Then at the back of the aircraft, you've got everyone else. There's more people at the back of the aircraft. They're all packed in like sardines. If someone needs to go to the toilet, everyone else has to get up and let them out. When the meal is served, it's really uncomfortable because particularly if you're my height, everyone's sort of banging into you. And this is what's happening in the church. There is a division between the two lots of people. To help us understand this situation a little bit more and to help us understand why this situation occurred, I'm going to read a little bit from uh, a brief excerpt from a book called The Thieves of Ostia. It's the Roman mystery series. Now, this book is set in 79 AD. Paul wrote to Corinth about uh, 55, around about that time, 55 AD. So fairly close in time. Why I'm reading something from Rome is because Corinth was a very Roman city. And we'll get to that just a little bit later. But in this um, brief excerpt that... Oh, I've missed talking about the atrium. That's right, I'll come back to that. In this brief excerpt, we've got um, Flavia, who's the main character. We've got Nubia, who is the slave. We've got Jonathan, Mordecai and Miriam, who are another family that, um, come, uh, that are sort of friendly with Flavia's family. 
And they are Christians, although we don't find that out until later in the book. They're actually, um, we find out that they're Jews initially. But in first century, Jews and Christians were just considered the same thing anyway. Then we've got Captain Flavius Geminus, who was um, Flavia's father. And in this excerpt, we've got um, Flavia planning her birthday party. And this will give a bit of an insight into what it meant to recline. Flavia was determined that her birthday dinner party would be a success. Her plan was to have Nubia recline next to Miriam, who seemed so quiet and gentle. She herself would lie on the same couch as Jonathan, and her father and Mordecai would take the third couch. No, said her father firmly, I'm afraid it's no good. Why not, Peter? First of all, you're not old enough to recline at dinner yet. Flavia started to protest, but he held up his hand and smiled. If it were just a family gathering, I would let you recline, but it's not. Furthermore, you told me our next-door neighbours are foreigners. From Judea, was it? Flavia nodded. Well, they might not feel comfortable reclining. Better to sit, don't you think, my little owl? He ruffled her hair affectionately. Yes, Peter, she sighed. Also, said Captain Geminus, did you know that when a mistress invites her slave to recline, it means she is granting that slave her freedom? Flavia shook her head. It's interesting, isn't it? If you ask someone to recline, you're saying that you are now a freed person. So this room, this triclinium, I'll go back to, whoops, go that way. So the triclinium was where the patrons were and that is reserved for the patrons. You see, what was happening in the church was no different to what was happening in, in society. In society, there was a division between these people and then when they went into the church, it was exactly the same. And that is why Paul is so critical. Here we have the atrium. So this is what I'm describing as the um, uh, economy class of the aeroplane. This is actually in the middle of the house um, and it's bounded by the four walls. And in the research I did, I found that there's not a lot of difference in size between the atrium and the triclinium. So the size isn't the issue. The issue is the fact that there is divisions amongst them. I like to think of the atrium um, a bit like Peter and Chris at Telford's house, where around the outside you've got the house and then you've got sort of a courtyard in the middle if, for those people who have been there. And I know... Now, that if I went to Peter and Chris's house and I was sitting in a couch and they said, Chris, do you want to come outside? I know now that that means they're going to treat me as a second-class citizen because they're putting, <laughs> they're putting me outside. <laughs> jokes, jokes aside, why is it that the church decided that they were going to behave no differently? Why is it? Well, I guess the patrons were trying to maintain their social class, weren't they? They were trying to maintain their social class and as we read, they didn't want to grant the slaves freedom. But Paul goes in and he, he really attacks them. He says to them that what they are doing is doing it no differently from people outside. So what, it, what is it that Christ's death has done for you if you're not behaving any differently to how the rest of the world is behaving. Christ's death matters. 
what happened back at the cross changes us. What happens back at the cross changes our behaviour so that there are no more divisions. You might remember in the book of James, it talks about someone coming into the congregation and when they come in, someone's got shabby clothing and someone's well-dressed. And in the book of James, we learn that, well, you shouldn't treat people differently depending on what they wear. And in the Roman society, they shouldn't have been treating people any differently based on their social class in society. The cross matters. The cross breaks down these social barriers that have existed in society. The cross tells us that there is no longer, any, uh, no longer Jew nor Greek. It breaks down that social barrier. There's no longer slave or freedman. The cross breaks down that barrier. And there's no longer male or female. The cross breaks down that social barrier that existed. Now, did the, this Corinthian congregation understand this? Well, yes, they did. You might remember just beforehand what Cam spoke on um, two weeks ago was the fact that um, Paul actually went out of his way to praise them. And he praised them because they were recognising that their church was different and they were actually finding roles for women within the church which wasn't being done outside. Now, they got it slightly wrong because you had women coming along and shaving their heads and they were thinking that if there's no difference between male and female, why don't I just become like a man and shave my head? So they didn't quite get it. What they did get is that the social barriers had been broken down, but then they came along and they weren't prepared to practice that in this communion situation or the Lord's Supper. And when they were partaking of the Lord's Supper, the patrons would go ahead, they would be in the triclinium eating, and they were stuffing themselves. They were eating up all the food and they were getting drunk. And by the time the clients and the rest of the society came along, they were in the atrium, they were sort of outside and there was nothing left for them. There was a division in the church which shouldn't have been there. Um, actually, I will stay on that. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's what we started with. So what's this talking about? Well, Paul is saying that when you meet together as a Christian group of people, there is a light that is shining upon you and that is the world's eye looking upon you. When you meet together, your behaviour matters. When you meet together, you should not just be another community organisation. We are a group of people that have been shaped by what has happened at the cross and we must realise that, we must recognise that. This message is far broader than what we do at Communion. This message is about what we do when we are Christ's people. People know that we are Christians and we ought to be shaped by the cross. We ought not to be just another community group that gather together. So what's the application of this? We need to remember that Christ died and that has significance for our life now. It has significance for our behaviour. Paul brings out a direct application straight away. Paul brings out the application that we should wait for one another when we come together for a meal. And what he's saying is that we don't put ourselves first anymore. We put other people first. 
Paul says to them, if someone is hungry, that person should eat at home because it is more important that you're looking after everyone else than looking after yourself. Paul then turns the situation around and he says, what you're doing is not partaking in the Lord's Supper because you're not looking after other people. If you are truly partaking in the Lord's Supper and realising the significance of what Christ has done for you at the cross then you are looking after the other person first. You are not going ahead and just sort of stuffing yourself. Now, I don't think this just relates to us eating food. This relates to a whole lot of things that could happen in the next week. You will be faced with situations during this next week where you will have to think, do I put myself first or do I put the other person first? Do I put my body first or do I put the body first? first and Paul is asking us to put the body first. Second, we need to realise that we are on mission constantly. In the last uh, 10 to 15 years there's been a real change in the way that the church understands mission. It used to understand mission as um, the church creates mission to go out to different countries in particular The reason that that's breaking down now is because we're realising that other countries are often more Christianised than the Western world. But there's also this understanding that the mission is the church. God has already created the mission field. We are the mission field. We are the church. And whatever we're doing, there is the eye of the world looking upon us and we are God's voice. We are proclaiming the kingdom of God until Christ comes again. That's not just related to what happens when we eat communion together. It's related to every area of our life. Our conduct matters because of what has happened at the cross. When people look upon us and see us as Christians, our conduct matters because of what has happened at the cross. The second point goes higher in the passage. And the reason I've left... Uh, this till afterwards is because I think we need the understanding of what was happening in the Corinthian church. I think we need the understanding of what was happening with the um, client and patron relationship. I want us to start off, sorry, the verse says, it is not for the better but for the worse that you come together. And to understand this verse fully, we need to understand a little bit about Corinth the city. I mentioned before that it's a very Roman city. It was colonised about 100 years prior to Paul writing by the Romans and by Julius Caesar and it became a very, very Roman city as a result. Uh, It had great trade routes, obviously being on the sea, it had great trade routes, it had great commerce. Corinth was a city that if you wanted to get ahead in life, it was the place to go. You could really go in there and raise your social status It was a great city in terms of raising social status. It had a mix of people there. Um, It had Jews, it had Greeks, it had slaves, it had free people. It had Jews and Christians and again I clumped them together because in first century they were clumped together. You may know um, a little bit about history and in 49 AD the Jews, which included the Christians, were actually kicked out of Rome because of all this commotion about whether someone rose from the dead or not. So it was treated as an internal squabble amongst the Jews and they were kicked out and probably a lot of them uh, went to a place like Corinth. 
So that was the city of Corinth. And in, in Corinth at the time, there were these great speakers. These speakers would get up and they would entertain you. People would come along to these public lectures so that they could hear these fantastic speakers. But the speakers wouldn't just entertain, their job was to persuade you of something. They were to persuade you of the better way of doing something. And the type of speech that they would uh, give was called a deliberative rhetoric speech. Now that sounds big and long, but if you think about it, it's quite simple. If you deliberate over something, you're thinking about the better outcome in the future, aren't you? If you're deliberating over something, what is the better thing for me to do? And when this speaker would get up and give this speech, he would say, the better thing for you to do is to raise your status. The better thing for you to do is gain more and more success. The better thing for you to do is to climb this uh, ladder. In our world today, it's sort of the corporate ladder, isn't it, that you've got to climb. The better thing to do is to have success. Now, these um, orators would actually then get people alongside. Um, they would actually bring them uh, and there would be people that would pay to then come along and listen to them and grow and learn from them. In our society, our education is more about the curriculum these days, but back then it was more about getting alongside a particular person and learning from that person. You may be aware that when Paul was educated, he was educated by a man called Gamaliel, and that's why he became so um, well educated. So it was getting alongside a particular person. Paul comes into this situation. He actually uses deliberative rhetoric, but he completely turns it upside down. He turns it upside down because he says the better thing in this world is not to increase your success. The better thing in this world is not to climb the corporate ladder, but the better thing is to lower yourself. It was an odd thing for him to be saying. But because of what Christ has done on the cross, because we remember back to what Christ has done on the cross and that has ongoing significance, we know that when Christ came, he came not to be served, but to serve. And so we too need to be not thinking about growing our own status, not growing our own success, but we need to be thinking about lowering ourselves in society. Paul completely turns upside down the message of the time about success and he says the better thing is now in lowering yourself. So what does that mean for us? It means that the message for us is the better way is lowering ourselves, and it means something for our social status. What's your social status like at the moment? Is it an issue that when you go out and you meet with people that you're shy about your Christian faith, you don't want to say you belong to Jesus because it might lower your social status? Is that a problem? Maybe you've got so many friends on Facebook and you're concerned about how many friends you've got. Maybe uh, you're on YouTube and you're worried about how many people are watching your channel or are subscribed to your channel. If that is a problem, then the message for you today is that we need to lower ourselves. We're not lifting our social status. What about different luxuries in the world? 
Uh, many of us go through life trying to get to a certain point where we can sort of pay off mortgages and things like that so that we'll have a bit more uh, money for various luxuries. If we are striving after those luxuries so that we can maintain a certain social status, then we're missing the point of what Christ has done on the cross for us. The better thing, according to Paul, is for us to be lowering ourselves, to take the nature of a servant. Now, those two applications are important, but I think this next one is probably the most important for our day in our society. When you get up in the morning, you might turn on morning television. You might listen to the radio. Throughout your day, you'll hear different people talking into your life. And when this happens, there are different voices that you've got to discern. Many of those voices will tell you, you've got to look after the number one. You've got to put yourself first. That's not the message of the cross. We don't put ourselves first anymore. Like Christ, we take the nature of a servant. I was having a conversation with someone uh, just last weekend and he said um, his wife and he had put themselves uh, second long enough. It was about time that they looked after themselves first. They weren't listening to the message of the cross. The message of the cross is that we don't lift up our own social status. We actually lower it because that's what Christ did. And that's what Paul is saying to this group of Christians as they're meeting together and there's social divisions amongst them, he's saying, we're not, we're not on to maintain our social status. We're on about making sure that we are a group together. We're on about making sure that we're looking after the other person before we're looking after ourselves. Remember, Christ died. We remember what he has done on the cross and it has ongoing significance. We saw, first of all, that proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes, we saw that that means that there is a, the light of the world shining upon us or the eye of the world shining upon us and they're looking to see what we're doing. We cannot be just another community group. We are people that have been shaped by what has happened at the cross. Second, we saw that what is better is completely turned upside down by the cross. We no longer put ourselves first. We no longer seek for our advantage first. Instead, we seek the other person. The clients, sorry, the patrons should have been seeking the clients first. Instead, they were stuffing themselves. They were becoming drunk. And when all the clients and pa uh, sorry, when all the um, yeah clients and uh, other people in society rocked up, they were left out in the courtyard. The message for today is that there should be no divisions in the church. There should be no divisions because what Christ did at the cross matters. Remember, Christ died.